I just knew I had to cross the river, which is about a mile wide. And I was going uh, like in one direction uh, down river. And I realized I cannot cross the river because if I cross, the waves will just go over my boat and I will be full of water. And if I, if, you know, if I turn it upside down, I'm dead. So I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? This is Linda Nylonsing. And in this very first episode of The Journey, we take you along Linda's odyssey around the world. A journey that led her to a life-and-death decision on a wild river in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness. A defining moment of the trip that defined her life. This is a story about the trip that changed everything. Hi, I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is The Journey. The Journey is an original podcast from KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, where we meet extraordinary people whose lives are transformed by travel. This story starts in 1983. 1983, oh boy. Linda Nylon Singh is in her mid-60s, has short gray hair, a body that's muscular, not like someone who hits the gym, but solid from physical labor. She served us tea in her homey houseboat in the Dutch city of Groningen, and she told us that back in 1983, when she was just 27 years old, she worked as a school teacher and was not happy. I had a great job, wonderful job. But um, after my mother died, I kind of felt uh, a little lost. And it felt like my life was just getting up in the morning, driving to work, working with the kids, and then go back. I didn't feel real good. I was, like, uh, unhappy. So then I thought, you know, something needs to change. And how are you going to change things? I couldn't think of anything else than change my environment, really. That's what I did. So I left in, uh, I think I left in 1984. Yeah. So Linda hit the road. The first port of call was Cuba, where she watched Fidel Castro speak, talked her way out of arrest, and secretly saw the island. She panned for gold in New Zealand and partied with Maoris. She lived off her wits, her muscles, and her ability to create goodwill in people everywhere. Linda says it was... Total freedom. Total freedom. That's the best feeling ever, that you don't know what's around the corner. That's the best feeling. Yeah. Linda worked as a tour guide, and for years she traveled to almost every corner of the world. But Alaska was different. There was a deep connection, and she kept coming back again and again. Well, imagine clear skies, stars, pristine snow... Thundering rivers, uh, fresh fish, big salmon on your plate that you just caught, the element, you know, winter, uh, snow. You know, you feel alive. That's pretty much it. And uh, the people, they also feel like one big family. Everybody's there for a reason. And the reason mostly is they, they want to get away from it all. One guy once said to me, like, uh, I'm better off without the world and the world is better off without me. 
So they're all looking for this basic kind of lifestyle. Linda says Alaska will feed you, make you happy, and if you don't live by its rules, it will kill you. Only the strong survive. And that brings us to the other main character in this story, the mountain man with the mustache. Big Jim. Jim, yeah. When did you meet Big Jim? Well, that was, um, I think that was the Christmas 1990. I was living with Kathy and her uh, husband and uh, her child, and she's a very social, sociable person, and she has many friends. Hi, Kathy. Yes, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you okay. My name's Jonathan, by the way. Hi, Jonathan. Kathy is probably Linda's best friend from her days in Alaska. And Kathy sort of set up her friend Big Jim and Linda on a date. You know, he was always a bachelor. You know, he was tall, and for some reason, we thought they would hit it off. For some reason? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> he was living the lifestyle that Linda had come to love. But, I, you know, they did hit it off right away. For Christmas 1990, they had invited a friend that lived as a trapper on the Yukon River by himself for a long time already, for 20 years, I think. And uh, he was a friend, so they invited him over, and um, I was, of course, invited too. I got there, and there he was, outside, waiting for me, which I thought was really kind of stupid. Because it felt like, you know, he was looking for a woman, that was obvious, yeah. What did he look like? Uh, six foot four, one meter ninety-six, huge guy. Of course, imagine a guy who's living in the bush in Alaska, chopping wood and doing heavy work all the time. So he looked pretty good, except for his face. He had this terrible mustache. You know, like the one that sailors have sometimes, like the drooping mustache, right? <laughs> yeah. When Linda Nylon Singh met Big Jim, it was not love at first sight. No way. No way. It was the opposite. It was like... Yeah, I want to go there, and I want to learn everything, but I don't want you. When Linda says, go there, she means to the wilderness with Big Jim to learn his way of life. And Jim regaled Linda with tales of his lonely but fulfilling life as a self-sufficient, self-reliant hunter of pelts far away from civilization in the wilds of the Alaskan forest. She was intrigued, and he saw that. He said, well, why don't you come out and uh, uh, spend a couple of weeks uh, with me and I'll teach you everything I know. Because he was very, he's, he's a very smart man and he knew that I was triggered by uh, curiosity. And uh, so he said, yeah, we'll go hunting and we'll go set some traps. And, and cut to a few weeks later and Linda is in an airplane flying to a tiny airport somewhere west of Fairbanks. Just the first leg of the trip to Big Jim's cabin in the woods. The pilot lands, dumps her pack out in the dark, cold runway, and takes off again. No Jim. There were a few guys uh, with a truck, and they said, are you Linda? Yes. He said, well, Big Jim uh, told us you would come, so why don't you jump in the truck and... uh 
will take you to the village. Half an hour later, there comes Jim. Hello. Not like, oh, I'm sorry for not picking you up. Sorry for being late. Nothing. No. Okay, there you are. Let's go. Let's go meant a raucous snowmobile ride down the mountain in 30 degrees below zero to Big Jim's camp, an utterly isolated place known as Birch Creek. Center of it all was Jim's cabin. Jim showed Linda around his lonely kingdom and then brought her inside the main cabin. Then he says, okay, well, this is where I live. This is the kitchen. This is my bedroom. This is my bed. And uh, that's about it. So I looked around and I said, okay, so um, where am I going to crash? He said, in my bed. I said, oh, great. So where are you going to sleep? He said, in my bed. So I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's an option. So he said, well, uh, okay, good enough. You can sleep on the floor. And that's exactly what happened. I got one of those little rotten little mattresses to sleep on. And it was, of course, very cold. And uh, so uh, I'm in a sleeping bag on the floor and he's in his bed. Well, he obviously had his mind set on, uh, uh, on having some good, loving warmth and uh, whatever goes with it, I guess. Sounds like you're talking about sex. Is that right? Yes. yes. I, that must be it then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. Now you mention it. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> and when you told him... Uh, no, Big Jim, that's not going to happen. How did he react exactly? Well, he got he got a little pissed off. He said, well, why are you here? I said, well, I think we discussed it profoundly. Like you were going to teach me everything and you were going to show me things how to do. And uh, well, it was not very, not very pleasant situation. No, like he was annoyed. He didn't, sh- he didn't try to hide it. Let's put it that way. And I got pissed off, of course. Well, then there was a little bit of argument going up and down, and uh, he said, okay, well, that's the way you want it. Fine. So that's the way I want it. And from that moment on, it was great, because uh, then that was out of the way. And so he was starting to explain things to me, how to set a a rabbit trap, and uh, we went to look at the Martin uh, traps, and uh, he explained to me about the greenhouse, about the generator, and how to uh, conserve fish and all that. And we had a great time and uh, fun. I mean, he had a really fantastic sense of humor, so we laughed a lot. With the sexual tension out of the way, Jim and Linda got to know each other. Jim was originally from upstate New York, and he fell in love with Alaska during a trip there in the 60s. A loner by nature, he hand-built his little kingdom. About 10 days into her visit, Linda realized something was different between them. This was confirmed when she woke up one morning to discover that the mountain man, Big Jim, rugged individualist, had shaved off his mustache. It's often like that with men have mustaches and they shave them off, then their face kind of lightens up, I find. And suddenly I thought, like, wow, what a nice face. And, huh, kind of attractive. And uh, we had fun. And then uh, pretty much one night I made the move myself. Jim changed. He was more fun and open. He showed his vulnerability. And he 
Um, he was relaxed. He wasn't trying to be macho or be this guy. He started, you know, talking about his loneliness. Oh, I recall the night, yes, we went on a trip. We went to, to go hunting, trapping. And that's when we spent the night in the, uh, in the trapper's cabin. You, uh, imagine that you live in a, in a cabin, but when you go trapping, you make a lot of miles, right? You, because you could go 20 miles and you don't want to go back in one day because it's a lot of work. I mean, you go really, really where nobody goes. And there was a little lake, all frozen, and uh, there was this little cabin and... You know, there's nobody there, and then you open the door, and you make fire, you unpack your gear and your food, and that night we started talking, you know, these conversations about his fears and about uh, his hopes and his dreams and, and, and why it was so difficult for him to be with people. That's the night that the, the Northern Lights came out, yeah. We'd walk outside and... Uh, you see these otter tracks and, and, and the northern lights come out. And it's brilliant. So you guys get together. Is it is it a passionate romance at that point? Could I describe yes, it like that? Yes, yes, absolutely. It was, it was very passionate. It was very together. It was very uh, fun. And I was completely in love. I was smitten, totally struck. <laughs> and, um, you know, like the feeling that you can't stop smiling and all that. I really thought we were meant for each other. Yeah, I thought so. He said, like, uh, you know, I want you. So, and we got married six weeks later. It was a whirlwind romance in marriage, and everyone was happy, even Linda's family. My name is Marianne, and I'm a sister of Linda. I was glad for her because she really liked the guy and she was happy. So, well, it was good news. This was the first time she, uh, she did that in, in that way. Yeah. And so, Linda Nylonsing of the Netherlands and mountain man Big Jim had found each other. And Jim helped Linda find a side of herself she didn't even know she had. I became a, a bigger person. I mean... I was daring things, and I was learning things, and I was, uh, yeah, we were partners doing things together. Hold this, hit that, let's make some moose meat. We had a lot of fun together. We'd sing songs together. <laughs> he would listen to my stories, and I would listen to his stories, and of course he was uh, impressive, and he knew all these things, and I was learning, and of course you're also alone, by just the two of you. So, yeah, good company. Daily life followed a fixed pattern of hard work. Fixing stuff, smoke fish, cut trees. And then, of course, there was hunting for pelts and skins, Big Jim's stock and trade. There were the rabbits and martens, the salmon, the occasional moose for meat, the bears. And then there was the time a wolf got caught in a foot trap. It was alive. And it made painfully clear that Linda and Jim were still in two totally different worlds. And the wolf is laying there because he can't go anywhere. And then you have to kill it. You get off the snow go and you pick up the gun. And Jim 
would wait for the animal to not move and the, the animal is just fixated on you because he knows this is going to happen. And the wolf kind of jumps up and falls down and blood streaming out of his mouth and foam, foamy blood. So then you have to go there, but you don't know how dead is he because he's not dead. He's breathing. He's like <gasps> heavily breathing. And so we walk up there carefully and Jim tells me to stand on his neck so he can give him the final shot. So this animal is laying there and I'm standing on his throat to suffocate him so he won't move. Yeah, with my full weight. And then he's breathing blood. And I remember that he was getting up under my feet. I mean, I'm, I'm not a light person, but he was like getting up so strong. And then Jim shot him from uh, close range and uh, he killed him. Yeah, that was not a fun experience. So he said, I, I don't need you to come with me next time because uh, he wasn't emotionally involved. He was just happy he got a wolf. Mercy killing wolves notwithstanding, Big Jim started off as a very good husband. Sometimes if, the, if it was a very nice uh, summer evening, for instance, we get in the boat and we take our fishing rods and uh, we just go across the river and it's you know, beautiful. You see beavers and it's quiet and we go fishing for pike. He loved being out there and me too. I loved it too. As long as, pretty much as long as I was with him, I was happy. Despite this wedded bliss, something happened that led Linda to wonder if she'd made the right decision. So uh, one day we would have some fishing nets in the river and one day I would go with a boat and check the fishing nets and take out the salmon. The next day he would go out and um, so we kind of swap. And one day it was my turn and the river was uh, really, really, really rough. I mean, there were big waves and it was cold and the wind was blowing and... uh, I kind of looked at it and I thought, I I don't know, I don't feel like going on this river. And uh, so I was looking at him thinking like, surely he'll say like, yeah, let's give it a miss today or something. But he didn't. So, and I said like, well, I I guess I'll be going then. And he's uh, kind of, yeah, okay, you know, not responding. And uh, so I went into the boat and I tried to cross the river, but it was just so dangerous because there were big waves and... uh, and I just knew I had to cross the river, which is about a mile wide. And I was going uh, like in one direction uh, down river. And I realized I cannot cross the river because if I cross, the waves will just go over my boat and I will be full of water. And if I, if, you know, if I turn it upside down, I'm dead. So I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? So I'm going like uh, down river and I figure if I pass the net, just way and then turn around real fast and then go back with the waves the other side I can make it so that's what I did and then I got there and it was so wild and that was going up and down and it's cold water and the salmon have really big teeth so my hands were bleeding and the, the, the water is pulling on the net and I get stuck you know it hurts and so I must have been busy like for an hour working trying to get the salmon out and then go back home which was scary so I got back home and I did the cut and all that cutting. And uh, the next day, the, the river was kind of quieting down some. 
And he wasn't getting ready to go and do the net. So I asked him, said, well, uh, when, are you, when are you leaving? When are you going to check the net? He said, with this weather, I'm not going. I'm not crazy. And that really pissed me off. And I said, what? You know, yesterday it was way worse than this. You let me go. He said, yeah, well, you know, I thought if she thinks she can do it, you know, I wouldn't go out with that weather. And that's when I, then that's when I thought this is really strange. I could have died there on that river easily. If, if I hadn't had all my wits together, I would have died that day. And we had an argument about that. I said, well, you know, I can't understand how you, how you take that risk with me. So that's pretty much the first time that I thought something's wrong here. Linda grew slowly discontented with her life. This only got worse when her sister Marion and her husband came for a visit, but left early. There wasn't so much to do for, uh, for visitors because you couldn't just walk off the uh, grounds because then there were <laughs> those beers, black ones. Yeah, after a few days, there was not much for us to do because Linda and Jim were working very hard. It was in the summertime, so they had to do a lot of jobs. Everything to, to prepare for the wintertime again because they have a very short summer in Alaska. Linda says her sister's sudden departure held a mirror up to her life and it wasn't pretty. She saw her life was one of heavy, repetitive labor and danger. And then... Linda announced she was pregnant. I, I had this little thing, the blue stick, and um, uh, I thought he was going to be happy. And uh, I was driving back home real carefully because I didn't want to go bump, 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 bump. And uh, he was not too happy, no. And he no. reacted exactly what did he say? Can't be. Can't be. No, can't, not, can't, not possible. Not possible. I have had women in my life and I'm sterile, so can't be. And um, pretty pretty soon after that, it was like, uh, it's not mine, can't be mine. I would be sleeping with other men or something. Like, that's pretty offensive to hear that. Big Jim even suggested she get an abortion. No way I'm going to get rid of it. So that's when I left. That's when I left him, and uh, I went to live in the village. And that's when I spent the three months of my pregnancy alone. And then he came to see me, and he, he, he told me he had thought about it, and he had kind of come to terms with the idea, and that it was okay, and we were going to make it, and uh, we would work it out. Jim and Linda went back to the camp and continued along like nothing had changed. No baby bed came, no birth plan, Jim continued to live his life. He's not um, not very much into your needs and pretty much doing his own thing and you can come together with him, but he's not going to change his ways because of you kind of thing. I thought love would conquer all that. I thought, you know, once you're together, you're a team, so you both adapt. Well, it turned out that I was adapting to his lifestyle and he was not adapting to my needs. Uh, I just accepted him for the, what he was and the way he was and uh, I adapted myself and uh, that worked out really good for him. But then when your life changes, as in becoming a father and a mother and a family, then that asks for different skills. 
Close to the due date, Linda went to town to a cheap hotel close to the hospital to wait for the contractions to start. She wanted Jim to come too. He didn't want to go. He said, there's lots of work to do and this is the busiest time of the year and I have to get stuff ready and don't you understand and da 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 da. So that was already not very nice. And, uh, but I made him go. So he arrived two days before I actually uh, gave birth. And imagine uh, you have to stay in a hotel and he didn't like to spend money. So I was in this dungy, not very clean, nasty hotel room having my first contractions. He was there and he was, he didn't want to come as I said. And uh, So here you're in the hotel room, I'm having uh, contractions. And he's kind of, he's saying to me, he's like, yo, can you keep it down a bit? I can't sleep. And here I'm trying to keep my voice down while I'm having contractions, right? Because he wants to sleep. So he was dragging his feet all the way and uh, finally go to the hospital. And it turned out that I was, I was so muscled strong. Like your pelvis has to give way to, for the baby, of course, but I had muscles like eye and cables more. And uh, it was really slow and it was really painful. It took two days. Linda required a lot of stitches and a long recovery time. Big Jim was not pleased. They stayed with some friends a few days and then moved back to Jim's cabin in Yukonville. The cabin is closer to civilization, but just barely. You need to cut firewood and get water, all things Linda was in no shape to do. She was still recovering from her stitches when it became clear Jim was getting ready to leave. And so we're in this village in, in this crappy old rotten cabin without any water uh, or firewood. And I see Jim packing his gear. And I ask him, it's like, what are, you, what, are you going, what are you doing? He says, I'm going home. I said, you can't go home. We agreed to stay here. I need you to stay here. I need you to get water. I need you to cut firewood. I need you to do everything. And, uh, no, yeah, yeah, so we, I begged him, I begged the man not to leave me alone because I was, uh, I was completely, uh, well, I was, I was devastated. I was completely devastated and uh, I begged him not to leave me and to help me and take care that I could just survive there. He turned around, he got his gear and he, he left. And um, so I stayed behind with, uh, I had to cut firewood, which I couldn't because every time I raised the axe, you know, my stitches would come undone. And uh, I had to get water and I didn't have anything. I didn't have uh, anything to transport the baby because I wasn't going to leave the baby alone. So I had an apple box. I remembered it because I have a picture of it. It says apple box from New Zealand. And there was an old truck, but the truck was all, you know, the, the windows were broken and it was burning oil. So, and there was no upholstery in the, in the, in the seat. So I would tie my baby in the box and to stop it from breathing the oil, the burning oil, I'll put a blanket over it and I tied it down with electrical wire. Yeah. To get water. Yeah. 
Kathy saw Linda and Jim's relationship unravel right in front of her eyes. I was shocked. It was appalling. Uh, You know, because they seemed to get along. He seemed to really love her. And the fact that he now is not into being a father and he left her in this village with a newborn baby and no firewood, I was uh, totally shocked. Linda suffered alone for two months. So she called home to her sister. I thought this is bad news because I only had my first child half a year before, so I knew how much you need the father of the child when you're just given birth. Yeah, it was bad news. Her being alone in uh, in that village without uh, anybody to help her. I remembered very well how it is to have a child and how much you need people around you to help you take care of a baby because you have no experience. Uh, we had phone calls uh, during several weeks, uh, maybe two weeks or so. And it didn't change. Things didn't get better. So I think in the end I said, well, be wise and uh, come back to Holland. We can take care of you and uh, you're better off in Holland. When Jim finally returned to the cabin, Linda asked for a divorce. All she wanted was the baby. When the judge heard her story, he was outraged. He granted her the divorce, the baby, and $10,000. And then Linda headed home. When you got on that final plane home to the Netherlands, um, with your baby and your life with Big Jim and the hut and the deprivation and all of it behind you, Hmm. what's the first thing that went through your head? Failure. Failure. Didn't work. Yeah. I tried. Didn't work. Linda's family had a house filled with food and baby articles and warmth waiting for her. After years of travel and adventure, home was no longer a place to escape from. It was a safe haven for Linda and her new baby. I was just happy, yeah. Happy, also sad. I think that must have been tears. Can't imagine anything else. I mean, there was sadness because of the fact that it didn't work, but there was... I was so grateful to have electricity, to have running water... Small things like that. They they had a house for me. They filled it up with a baby bed and a baby bath and wine and eggs and coffee and sugar. And I remember turning up the heater and this, this feeling of happiness, like warmth without work, water without work, light without work. <laughs> it was just, I could just relax. More than two decades have passed, and Linda has her new life. She lives in a lovely old boat on a canal in the northern Dutch city of Groningen, close to her family. She went back into education, but also lectures about her life in the wilderness, proudly holding up a wolf pelt and a marten trap. And her son Michael has grown into a handsome young man. He's big, like his father, and has a powerful wanderlust, like his mother. Big Jim has come to visit over the years. The visits didn't go so well. He gets here and he's completely lost. He panics. He has panic attacks. He he can't drive a car. He can't. He cannot. He cannot deal with this. No. So. Does he have a relationship at all with Michael? <laughs> I asked him one time about his relationship with his father, and he said we never talked. 
we build houses together. Closing questions. Um, if you could do it all over again, would you? Of course. Seriously? Of course. Yeah, you know, uh, bad experience is experience too. I had a great time. I learned many things. I have great friends. I have a fantastic son. Why regret something like that? No. A big love in my life. Good experience. It, may, it has made me more humble, more understanding of other people. It has taught me what grief is. So I have better understanding and empathy with other people. I've grown as a person. I've seen fantastic things. No. No. No, not, not one second. It was worth it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Linda Nylonsing. At Linda's request, we changed Big Jim's name and a few details regarding his whereabouts to protect his privacy. We've tried to contact Jim for an interview, but we weren't able to reach him. Linda wrote a wonderful book about her travels and her life with Jim called Wilderness Years. We'll link to it on our website, podcast.klm.com. You've been listening to The Journey, an original podcast brought to you by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. For more background on this story and to hear more stories about the trip that changed everything, go to podcast.klm.com. And why not review us on iTunes? It helps other listeners find this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Thank you.